Chapter 3 Biblical Fact and History Against Dogma Granted that the New Testament does not say, in so many words, that Jesus of Nazareth was actually God, it is natural to ask how the Christian Church came to assert that he was. That's from Peter Hinchcliffe, Christology and Tradition, in the book God Incarnate, Story and Belief. Has any historian had the audacity to contend that Israel's doctrine of God in Jesus' day or afterwards was anything but the strictest monotheism? That's from Pastor William Wattell, an article called Christian Monotheism, Reality or Illusion. Christians are urged by Paul to flee from any teaching which is not in harmony with the health-giving words, namely those of our Lord Jesus Christ. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he has an over-high opinion of himself, being without knowledge, having only an unhealthy love of questionings and wars of words, from which come envy, fighting, cruel words, evil thoughts. That's from 1 Timothy 6, verse 3. This warning of the apostle would seem to apply well to the hair-splitting wars of words which raged around the development of the post-biblical creeds. Ought it not to have been sufficient to rest in the creed of Jesus that none is the supreme God but his Father? The Lord our God is one Lord. That proposition is easily understandable by anyone with a childlike attitude to truth, an approach which Jesus commended so highly. Jesus is said in Scripture to be the apostle of the Christian faith, the apostle of our confession, Hebrews 3 verse 1. The same verse names him our high priest. Mention is often made of the Apostles' Creed, which is not in the Bible, but reflects an early confession of Almighty God and Jesus. What could be wrong with appealing to the creed of Jesus, our apostle? I believe that the Lord our God is one Lord, Mark 12, 29. Its parallel in John 17, 3, records Jesus' own strict monotheism. He declared that, quote, you, Father, are the only one who is truly God. These are easy propositions which should have been left in all their pristine purity. Years of conflict and confusion could have been avoided. Ancient voices of protest. The celebrated poet John Milton was one of three distinguished minds of the 17th century, along with Sir Isaac Newton and John Locke and many other learned dissenters who protested against the Trinitarian creed of the churches. Milton's timely advice to us was to rely on Scripture alone. I quote, Let us then discard reason in sacred matters and follow the doctrine of the Holy Scripture exclusively. It is most evident from numberless passages of Scripture 
that there is in reality but one true, independent, and supreme God. And as he is called one, inasmuch as human reason and the common language of mankind and the Jews, the people of God, have always considered him as one person only, that is, one in a numerical sense. Let us have recourse to the sacred writings in order to know who this one true and supreme God is. This knowledge ought to be derived in the first instance from the gospel, since the clearest doctrine respecting the one God must necessarily be that copious and explanatory revelation concerning him which was delivered by Christ himself to his apostles and by the apostles to their followers. Nor is it to be supposed that the gospel would be ambiguous or obscure on this subject, for it was not given for the purpose of promulgating new and incredible doctrines respecting the nature of God, hitherto utterly unheard by his own people, but to announce salvation to the Gentiles through Messiah, the Son of God. According to the promise of the God of Abraham, I quote, No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. John 1.18 Let us therefore consult the Son in the first place respecting God. According to the testimony of the Son, delivered in the clearest terms, the Father is that one true God by whom are all things. Being asked by one of the scribes in Mark 12, 28, 29, and 32, which was the first commandment of all, Jesus answered from Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Or as it is in the Hebrew, Jehovah our God is one Jehovah. The scribe assented, there is only one God, and there's none other but he. And in the following verse, Christ approves this answer. Nothing can be more clear than that it was the opinion of the scribe, as well as of the other Jews, that by the unity of God is intended his oneness of person. That this God was no other than God the Father is proved from John 8, 41 and 54. We have one Father, even God. It is my Father who honors me of whom you say that he is your God. John 4.21 Neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem shall you worship the Father. Christ therefore agrees with the whole people of God that the Father is that one and only God. For who can believe it possible for the very first of the commandments to have been so obscure and so ill understood by the church through a succession of ages that two other persons equally entitled to worship should have remained wholly unknown to the people of God and debarred of divine honors even to that very day. Christ himself, therefore, the Son of God, teaches us nothing in the gospel respecting the one God but what the law had before taught and everywhere clearly asserts him to be his father. John 17, 3, quote, This is eternal life, 
that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. John 20, 17. I ascend to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. If therefore the Father be the God of Christ, and the same be our God, and if there be no other God but one, there can be no God beside the Father. That's from John Milton's On the Son of God and the Holy Spirit. After examining the plainly Unitarian statements of Paul, Milton reflects on the prodigious efforts that the Church has made to confuse such simple truth that God is one person. Though all this, the numerical singularity of God, be so self-evident as to require no explanation, namely that the Father alone is a self-existent God, and that a being which is non-self-existent cannot be God, it is wonderful with what futile subtleties, or rather with what juggling artifices, certain individuals have endeavored to elude or obscure the plain meaning of these passages, leaving no stone unturned, recurring to every shift, attempting every means, as if their object were not to preach the pure and unadulterated truth of the gospel to the poor and simple, but rather by dint of vehemence and obstinacy to sustain some absurd paradox from failing by the treacherous aid of sophisms and verbal distinctions borrowed from the barbarous ignorance of the schools. That was from John Milton's On the Son of God and the Holy Spirit. Sir Isaac Newton, one of the most distinguished scientists of all time, Sir Isaac Newton, 1642 to 1727, was a passionate opponent of the church's understanding of the one God as triune. Because of his prominent public position, his theological writings, which were immense, were guarded in their criticism of orthodoxy. Nevertheless, Newton was familiar with the anti-Trinitarian writings of his time, and he argued, as did Arians and Socinians, that is, anti-Trinitarians of the 17th century, that the word God in the Bible should be understood of the Father of Jesus, and that the very occasional use of, quote, God for Jesus does not make him part of a co-eternal Godhead, even Moses, Sir Isaac pointed out, was called God in an honorary sense. Karen Armstrong explains Sir Isaac's dislike for the imaginative concept of God in Trinitarianism. His total immersion was in the world of Logos. In his view, mythology and mystery were primitive and barbaric ways of thought. Tis the temper of the hot and superstitious part of mankind in matters of religion ever to be fond of mysteries and for that reason to like best what they understand least. Karen Armstrong goes on. Newton became almost obsessed with the desire to purge Christianity of its mythical doctrines. 
he became convinced that the rational dogmas of the Trinity and the Incarnation were the result of conspiracy, forgery, and chicanery. The spurious doctrines of the Incarnation and the Trinity had been added to the creed by unscrupulous theologians in the fourth century. Indeed, the book of Revelation had prophesied the rise of Trinitarianism, this so-called strange religion of the West, the cult of three equal gods. That was from Karen Armstrong's book, The Battle for God. In his two notable corruptions of 1690, Newton anticipated the work of many later scholars who have shown that the Greek manuscripts of our New Testament have been tampered with in certain verses with the intention of promoting the so-called deity of Jesus. See, for example, Bart Ehrman, The Orthodox Corruption of Scripture. Newton was an advocate of simplicity. He said in disputable places of scripture, he loved to take up what I can best understand. That's a quotation from Stephen Snowbelen, God of Gods and Lord of Lords, the theology of Isaac Newton. Newton contended for simplicity against a backdrop of corrupting and complicating influences from philosophy and metaphysics. Newton believed that scripture is reasonable and composed in the tongue of the vulgar. Thus, there is an expectation that the Bible is written in plain and lucid language. Newton's professed desire to avoid introducing hypotheses into natural philosophy aligns with his suspicion about infusing metaphysics into scripture. He argued also that one should quote, prefer those interpretations which are most according to the literal meaning of the scriptures. Karen Armstrong affirms that Newton was correct in his analysis of the Trinity as irrational. She points out that the makers of Trinitarian dogma did not intend the doctrine to be subject to reasoned analysis. I quote, ultimately, the Trinity only made sense as a mystical or spiritual experience. It had to be lived, not thought, because God went far beyond human concepts. It was not a logical or intellectual formulation, but an imaginative paradigm that confounded reason. Gregory of Nazianzus made this clear when he explained that contemplation of the three in one induced a profound and overwhelming emotion that confounded thought and intellectual clarity. Quotation, no sooner do I conceive of the one that I'm illumined by the splendor of the three. No sooner do I distinguish three than I'm carried back into the one. When I think of any of the three, I think of him as the whole and my eyes are filled and the greater part of what I'm thinking escapes me. That's from Karen Armstrong's book, A History of God. One of the chief architects of the Finnish Trinitarian dogma considered that three men ought really to be thought of as one since they share a common 
humanity. The atmosphere of such language and thought is far removed from that of Scripture. One's suspicions are further confirmed when we learn that Athanasius, chief architect of the Trinity, attempted to create an artificial connection between his teaching about God and the famous desert ascetic, St. Anthony. Quote, Athanasius tried to show how his new doctrine affected Christian spirituality. The real Anthony comes across as a human and vulnerable man, troubled by boredom, agonizing over human problems and giving simple direct advice. However, Athanasius presents him in an entirely different light. He is, for example, transformed into an ardent pro-Trinitarian opponent of Arianism. He'd already begun to enjoy a foretaste of his future apotheosis or deification since he shares the divine apathia, that is the inability to suffer pain to a remarkable degree. When, for example, he emerged from the tombs where he had spent 20 years wrestling with demons, Athanasius says that Antony's body showed no signs of aging. He was a perfect Christian. That quotation is from Karen Armstrong's A History of God. Athanasius had no reservations about outright trickery in support of the justice of his case for the triune God. So-called orthodox clergy have been burdened with the problem of expressing their view of God at the peril of misstating it. This points to the awful complexity of Trinitarian theory as compared with the non-complex Unitarian creed of Jesus. The Anglican Bishop Beveridge of the 17th century wrote, we are to consider the order of those persons in the Trinity described in the words before us in Matthew 28, 19. First the Father, then the Son, and then the Holy Ghost, every one of which is really and truly God, a mystery which we are bound to believe and must have great care how we speak of it, it being both easy and dangerous to mistake in expressing so great a truth as this is. If we think of it, how hard it is to imagine one numerically divine nature in more than one and the same divine person, or three divine persons in no more than one and the same divine nature. If we speak of it, how hard it is to find our words to express it. If I say the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost be three, and everyone distinctly God, it's true. But if I say there are three, and everyone a distinct God, it is false. I may say God the Father is one God, and the Son is one God, and the Holy Ghost is one God. But I cannot say that the Father is one God, and the Son is another God, and the Holy Ghost a third God. I may say that the Father begat another who is God, but I cannot say that he begat another God. And from the Father and the Son proceeds another who is God. Yet I cannot say from the Father and the Son proceeds another God. For all this while, 
though their nature be the same, their persons are distinct. And though their persons are distinct, yet still their nature is the same. So that though the Father be the first person in the Godhead, the Son the second, and the Holy Ghost the third, yet the Father is not the first God, the Son the second, and the Holy Ghost a third God. So hard a thing it is to word so great a mystery aright, or to fit so high a truth with expressions suitable and proper to it, without going one way or another from it. That's from William Beveridge, cited in Charles Morgridge, The True Believer's Defense. The bishop went on to lament the fact that the chief complaint of the Quran is that Christians believe in a trinity of persons in the divine nature. Since each was designated God, the doctrine was rather obviously tritheistic in the eyes of a Muslim. A contemporary of Bishop Beveridge offered us this by way of a description of the Trinity. There is one divine nature or essence common to three persons incomprehensibly united and ineffably distinguished. United in essential attributes, distinguished by peculiar idioms and relations, all equally infinite in every divine perfection, each different from the other in order and manner of subsistence. And there's a mutual inexistence of one in all and all in one, a communication without deprivation or diminution in the communicant, an eternal generation and an eternal procession without precedence or succession, without proper causality or dependence. A father imparting his own and the son receiving his father's life and a spirit issuing from both without any division or multiplication of essence. That's from Barrow's works cited in the True Believer's Defense. The admission of Professor Moses Stewart, 1780 to 1852, one of the most learned Trinitarians of his day, shows how far so-called orthodox definitions have departed from the biblical blueprint. Speaking of the definition of persons or distinctions in the Godhead, he wrote, I do not and cannot understand them, and to a definition I cannot consent, still less defend it, until I do understand what it signifies. I have no hesitation in saying that my mind is absolutely unable to elicit any distinct and certain ideas from any definition of person in the Godhead, which I have ever examined. That's also from the True Believer's Defense. Archbishop John Tillotson of the Church of England commented on the, quote, jargon and canting language of the schoolmen. I envy no man the understanding of these phrases, but to me they seem to signify nothing but to have been words invented by idle and conceited men, which a great many ever since, lest they should seem to be ignorant, would seem to understand. But I wonder most what men, when they have amused and puzzled themselves and others with hard words, should call this 
explaining things. That's from Tillotson's works, cited also in the True Believer's Defense. Another scholar wrote wisely, I quote, the language of scripture is the language of common sense, the plain artless language of nature. Why should writers adopt such language as renders their meaning obscure? And not only obscure, but unintelligible, and not only unintelligible, but utterly lost in the strangeness of their phraseology. That's from Dr. Dwight, cited in the True Believer's Defense. Among repeated candid admissions of the extreme difficulties bequeathed to the church by the very non-Jewish creed of the church fathers, there is this example of perplexity from Dr. John Hay. When it is proposed to me to affirm that in the unity of the Godhead, there be three persons of one substance, power and eternity, the Father, the Son and Holy Ghost, I have difficulty enough. My understanding is involved in perplexity. My conceptions bewildered in the thickest darkness. I pause, I hesitate. I ask what necessity there is for making such a declaration. But does not this confound all our conceptions and make us use words without meaning? I think it does. I profess and proclaim my confusion in the most unequivocal manner. I make it an essential part of my declaration. Did I pretend to understand what I say, I might be a tritheist or an infidel, but I could not both worship the one true God and acknowledge Jesus Christ to be Lord of all. That's cited in John Wilson. Unitarian principles confirmed by Trinitarian testimonies. Relief for the doctor's agonizing is provided simply by the creedal words of Jesus. You, Father, are the only one who is truly God. John 17, 3. Jesus is his commissioned human Messiah. Jesus referred to his Father as my commissioning Father. John 5, 37 and 644. In our time, the public is exposed to a book called The World's Easiest Guide to Understanding God. The conversation proceeds between two believers. Quote, all you need to remember is that there's one God. Oh, so you don't consider Jesus to be a God? Jay offered. Oh, yes, I do. Dan emphasized. Jesus is absolutely God and the Holy Spirit he is God too. All right, Jay said with a sigh. So we've got the Father who is God, Jesus who is God, and the Holy Spirit who is God. That adds up to one God, Dan finished. Jay slapped his forehead. Okay, maybe it's as confusing as it sounds, Dan acknowledged. That's from Randy Southern's book, The World's Easiest Guide to Understanding God. The author does little to ease the confusion. If the Trinity is not the most confusing and least understood aspect of the Christian faith, it is easily in the top five. It is not that the subject is unfamiliar. Most Christians can tell you that the Trinity is made up of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Beyond that, though, things 
get a little fuzzy. They do indeed. The proposition X is God, Y is God, and Z is God, and that makes one God, is just nonsense. It can only be resolved into some sort of sense by the proposition that X, Y, and Z amount to one God in a sense different from that predicated of the three. Three X's cannot equal one X, but three X's can equal one Y. The problem which remains unsolved is how to square any of this with the words of Jesus, who declared the true God to be one Lord and a single Father. Would it not be a resolution of all the confusion to admit with J. H. Newman, 1801-1890, quote, the mystery of the doctrine of the Holy Trinity is not merely a verbal contradiction, but an incompatibility in the human ideas conveyed. We can scarcely make a nearer approach to an exact enunciation of it than that of saying that one thing is two things. That's from select treatises of St. Athanasius. The same bewilderment was expressed by an Anglican bishop, Heard, 1720 to 1808. He said at the Trinity, quote, reason stands aghast and faith herself is half confounded. Statistics. In no verse in the Bible, and there are some 31,102 verses, is the word three ever associated with the word God. God is never said to be numerically three. None of the 810,677 words of the Bible provides a sample of the word God, meaning a triune God. Yes, of course, the Father, the Son, and Spirit are mentioned together often in the New Testament, but never once does any Bible writer arrive at the proposition that God is to be defined as three persons. It is one thing to speak of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit together. It's quite another to say that each of these three is co-equally God and that together they amount to one God. The so-called Trinitarian passage in Matthew 28:19 may sound like the much later doctrine of the Trinity, but it does not say that the three linked together as a triad amount to one God. Nor, of course, does the doxology in 2 Corinthians 13, 13, quote, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. These statements say nothing at all about the triad being equal to one God. Bible writers never mean a triune God when they say God, since the words God and Lord God and capital L-R-D appear over 12,000 times they had about 12,000 opportunities to make that equation. God equals God in three persons, but they never did. They constantly say that God is a single person and in the New Testament, they equate that divine individual with the father of Jesus. 
who is everywhere said to be the father's son. Exhaustive studies by both Protestant and Catholic scholars affirm that the word God, used absolutely in our New Testament documents, refers to the father of Jesus on page after page. There's a very rare exception. On two occasions for certain, the term God is applied to Jesus. But it should be remembered that the judges of Israel could be called God, Psalm 82 verse 6, and that Moses was said to be God to Pharaoh, Exodus 7 verse 1. The Roman emperor at the time of Jesus could also be addressed as Lord and God. In no case throughout the whole of Scripture does the word God mean God in three persons. The tripersonal God is therefore never mentioned as such in the Scriptures. This fact surely calls for a public investigation. The absence of the triune God as such would seem to rule out any suggestion that the Father and the Son are both equally to be thought of as God. While God in the New Testament describes the Father over 1300 times, the same word God is used of Jesus on two occasions for certain in the New Testament. There are a few verses where Jesus may be referred to as God, but because of grammatical ambiguity, this cannot be maintained with certainty. For example, 1 John 5.20, Romans 9.5, and 1 John 5.7 in the King James Version is known by all modern commentators to be a forgery, which is no part of the original text. The one Lord of the creed, which we hear Jesus affirming as the basis of true religion, Mark 12, 28-34, citing Deuteronomy 6, 4, is unambiguously a reference to the God and Father of Jesus. Jesus never hinted that he was overturning his whole Hebrew heritage in the matter of defining who God is by including himself in the Godhead. To say that he was God, while acknowledging his father as God, would quite evidently confront his audience with the proposition that there were two gods. This Jesus never imagined, nor did he accept for one moment any accusation that he was interfering with the creed of Israel. He was not accused of deconstructing the monotheism of his Hebrew heritage. On the contrary, as we've seen in Mark 12, 29, Jesus affirmed that strict unitary monotheism of Judaism, making it the basis of the greatest of all commandments. In John's account of Jesus' teaching, Jesus identified his God as the God of the Jews, holding the Jewish creed in common with Jews. I quote, we know whom we worship for salvation is from the Jews, John 4.22. At what point a church member today might reasonably inquire was that greatest commandment of God and of Jesus rescinded? Are churches meeting in the name of Jesus free to disregard the heart of his theology of God and redefine the creed? Are they at liberty to reshape the meaning of ultimate reality. An enormous fuss is made in America 
about the sanctity of the Ten Commandments. But how many are agitated by the fact that the church has forgotten the greatest commandment, Jesus' own definition of who God is? It seems to be sailing under false colors. Historian Karen Armstrong. There's no doubt at all about the historical facts. Christianity began as another of the first century movements that tried to find another way of being Jewish. It centered on the life and death of a Galilean faith healer who was crucified by the Romans in about CE 30. His followers claimed that he had risen from the dead. They believed that Jesus of Nazareth was the long-awaited Jewish Messiah who would shortly return in glory to inaugurate the kingdom of God on earth. He was the, quote, son of God, a term they used in the Jewish sense of someone who had been assigned a special task by God and enjoyed a privileged intimacy with him. That's from Karen Armstrong's book, The Great Transformation. Karen Armstrong's brief summary is equally helpful when she goes on to point out that, and I quote, the ancient royal theology had seen the king of Israel as the son and servant of Yahweh, the suffering servant in second Isaiah, who was associated with Jesus, had also suffered humiliation from his fellow humans and had been raised by God to an exceptionally high status. Jesus had no intention of founding a new religion and was deeply Jewish, as from Karen Armstrong's book, The Great Transformation. We should modify this last statement slightly. Jesus did not just repeat the Judaism bequeathed to Jews by Moses. Claiming an astonishing authority as the unique spokesman for the one God, his father, he went beyond the letter of the Torah of his own heritage in some areas. For example, Mark 7.19 provides what's probably an editorial comment as to how Jesus was seen to have modified the Torah in the matter of food laws. Compare Romans 14 verses 14 and 20, where Paul speaks as a convinced Jewish Christian. Paul did not affirm the law of circumcision required of all wanting to be part of the old covenant. See, for example, Genesis 17, 10 to 14, and compare 1 Corinthians 7, verse 18 and 19, and Galatians 5, verse 2. What Jesus certainly did not do was to undermine or alter in any way the central tenet of his and Israel's faith that God his Father was the sole God of the universe, who at the beginning had, quote, made them male and female, Mark 10, verse 6. In this conviction, he was strictly in line with the great prophet Isaiah, who had reported that the God of Israel created all things by himself, unaccompanied. Isaiah 44, verse 24. On no occasion did Jesus ever claim to be the Genesis creator. When a young man addressed Jesus as, quote, good teacher, he immediately challenged this greeting by pointing out that, quote, only one is good, the one God, Mark 10, 17 to 18. 
In none of his recorded sayings did Jesus state, quote, I am God. If he had said this, he would have been heard to say, I am the Father, since he constantly referred to God as his Father. At his trial, the worst his accusers could say of him was that he claimed to be, quote, the Son of God or Messiah, a King. John 19, verse 7, Luke 23, verse 2. When Jesus was accused by hostile Pharisees of claiming to be, quote, equal with God, he immediately denied that he was capable of doing anything on his own. John 5, verses 18 to 19. He was totally dependent on the one God, his Father. It is preposterous to suppose that Jesus meant that as God, he was dependent on God, or that as God, he always did what God, his Father, told him to do. Referring to John 8.28, C.K. Barrett writes, quote, It is simply intolerable that Jesus would be made to say, I am God, the supreme God of the Old Testament, and being God, I do as I am told. And in John 13, 19, I am God, and I'm here because someone sent me. That's from Barrett's Essays on John. Over and over again, Jesus declared himself to be God's son, and as such, to be subordinate to his father, as every son ought to be. Any such talk, of more than one person being God is totally ruled out by the unitary monotheism which governs our New Testament documents. More evidence from the standard authorities. Standard Bible dictionaries give us the fullest support for the monotheism of Jesus. Hastings Dictionary of the Bible states, and I quote, in Mark out of 20 quotations, of which all but one are sayings of our Lord, 16 are either exact or very slightly altered quotations of the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament. Mark 12, verses 29 to 30, from Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 to 5, is the great Shema, which from its frequent use in devotion was probably known to Greek Jews in its Hebrew form. So says James Hastings in his Dictionary of the Bible. Jesus was simply repeating the great creedal statement of his heritage and hoped to pass it on to us, his followers. The Dictionary of Christ and the Gospels in its article on the Trinity says, I quote, we must never forget that Christianity was built upon the foundation of Jewish monotheism. A long providential discipline had secured to the Jewish people their splendid heritage of faith in the one and only God. Quote, Hear, O Israel, Jehovah our God is one Jehovah. This was the cornerstone of the religion of Israel. These were perhaps the most familiar of all sacred words to the ears of the pious Jew. They were recited continually. Our Lord himself had them frequently in his mind. Matthew 22, 37, Mark 12, 29 and 30, and Luke 10, verse 27. 
that he thought of God always as a supreme one is unquestionable. That's from the article on the Trinity in the Dictionary of Christ and the Gospels. But why did the church not follow Jesus in this matter of creed and definition of who God is? The claim that Christianity is in fact built on the foundation of Jewish monotheism may turn out to be a hollow boast. A German professor of the Bible, Hans Hinrich Wendt, wrote in The Teaching of Jesus, Jesus taught no new doctrine of God. The God of whom Jesus speaks is the one God of Israel, Mark 12, 29. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Jesus has based his view on the Old Testament revelation of God and the knowledge of the nature of God as derived from this revelation, he accepted as valid. Nowhere do we find him stating and teaching anything as the nature of God, which was impossible on the basis of the Old Testament religion. When he affirmed that none were good but God only, Mark 10, 18, he sought to unfold no new view of God, which would have required a special explanation and basis for the Jewish mind. But he appealed to those features of the divine character whose recognition he could take for granted. He employs the name of Father to designate God. That's from Vent's teaching of Jesus. Designating God as the Father and calling him unique God is, of course, to declare oneself a Unitarian. It is impossible to imagine Jesus promoting in any way a strange triune God. Loyalty to Jesus would seem to require that we agree with him about who God is and how many he is. The celebrated Peake's commentary on the Bible tells us the Shema was repeated daily by the Jews. It was the foundation text of their monotheism. Why was there any need to go beyond Jesus? More recently, world-famous theologian N.T. Wright states, I quote, The answer Jesus gave to the question about which is the greatest commandment of all was thoroughly non-controversial, quoting the most famous Jewish prayer, Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. The Shema, the prayer which begins with these lines, was central to Judaism then as it is now. And the coupling of it with the command to love one's neighbor was not unknown either. The scribe receives from Jesus an accolade. That's from Jesus and the victory of God. But would Jesus celebrate the church's departure from this creed? Why was the creed of Jesus not left intact as a standing testimony to the most refreshing and unifying truth of the universe? Why is this great commandment not taken with utmost seriousness by followers of Jesus today? No one would quarrel with Jesus' teaching about loving one's neighbor and loving God but Christians do not seem willing to accept Jesus' definition of who that God is, who is to be loved with all our hearts. 
This is confusing and inconsistent. State of the art in evangelical scholarship, the word biblical commentary, Jesus' affirmation of the Shema is neither remarkable nor specifically Christian. This remark is revealing indeed. Jesus' teaching is not, quote, specifically Christian. Quote, exalting the Jewish law is hardly what one would expect an early Christian to do if the exchange between Jesus and the Jew is thoroughly Jewish in perspective and advance nothing of the early church's distinctive claims, why was the tradition, I'll say that again, why was the tradition preserved? That's from Craig Evans in the Word Biblical Commentary on Mark. Why was it preserved? Because Jesus said it was the most important spiritual truth in the universe. Quote, the scribe's assertion would be reassuring and of some apologetic value, an affirmation indeed of the very creed of Jesus. Having come to the point of agreeing with Jesus' answer, the scribe is now drawing closer to the kingdom, that is, to being saved. What is so difficult about this? Why might it not simply be the truth and the most important summary of all truth? Was not Mark an evangelist for the true faith? addressing us all and presenting his beloved hero as a resolute believer in the one God of Israel. The affirmation that the Lord our God is one Lord is implicitly an injunction to recognize and obey the only God. The only God is identified as Yahweh. A comment in Josephus reflects similar thinking. Jesus' affirmation of Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 to 5, is thoroughly Jewish and is, as already stated, unremarkable. Jesus' double commandment summary of the law places him squarely in the center of Jewish piety. On what authority, then, are we at liberty to remove Jesus from the center of Jewish piety? What does this say about Christians who seem quite uninterested in the great commandment of Jesus? Is the creed of Jesus really unremarkable in view of the fact that his words were later replaced with a creed he would not have known about? What is truly remarkable is the patent fact that Jesus was a non-Trinitarian believer. He is also the head of the new creation to which Christians claim to belong as members of his church. I quote, Jesus is not presenting Israel with some new strange doctrine, but the church does exactly that. It claims Jesus' approval, contrary to Jesus' express words, for a strange new doctrine of God, and then expresses its persecuting fury against any follower of Jesus who questions it. History demonstrates repeatedly that the so-called heretic has been the brunt of every imaginable form of unloving treatment. Jesus, however, killed no one, but rather allowed himself to be killed. The loss of original truth. In his Introduction to Christian Doctrine, John Lawson writes, 
the primitive church went before the world preaching two imperative religious interests from its Jewish background in the scriptures that there is one sovereign God and from its experience of salvation that Christ is divine. As and when the church developed the talent and leisure for intellectual speculation, it was realized that there's a tension between these two interests. How could they both be safeguarded? Thus the fathers of the church had to construct a doctrine of God which would enable them to say that their Lord was a divine savior in the full and proper sense of the word and at the same time make it plain that there's only one God. The fruit of this admittedly exacting intellectual quest is the doctrine of the Trinity. That's from John Lawson's Introduction to Christian Doctrine. The result of this painful effort was to abandon the words of Jesus in the name of, quote, experience. But who authorized the idea that experience is the ultimate criterion of truth? It is not. The words and teachings of Jesus are. Who authorized the church fathers, quote, to construct a doctrine of God? When Jesus and the Bible had provided a clear creed, the tragic fact is that the most important teaching of all, loving the one God of the Hebrew Bible, was compromised. The human Messiah was promoted from Son of God to deity. Deity was thus assaulted and the fundamental unity of God promoted from one end of the Bible to the other was sabotaged. Could it be that Mary and later dead so-called saints were promoted to the rank from which Jesus had been improperly removed? In a sort of theological musical chairs, Jesus was moved into the place reserved in the Bible for the one God. Mary was then needed to fill Jesus' role of human intercessor on the principle that if we refuse one part of scripture, in this case, its primary doctrine, we are abandoned to our own devices with dire consequences. It is worth pondering what has happened to the Jewish Jesus. In a miniature way, this principle was illustrated when Zacharias refused to believe the words of God through the angel. He was rendered dumb. Failure to believe has its consequences. I quote, because the love of the truth they did not embrace in order to be saved. God gave them over then to a spirit of delusion to believe what is false. 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 10 to 11. John Lawson admits, I quote, Christian theology speaks of God as he and not it. But is the triune God truly a person? C.S. Lewis says the opposite. We must remind ourselves that Christian theology does not believe God to be a person. It believes him to be such that in him, a trinity of persons is consistent with a unity of deity. 
That's from Lewis's Christian Reflections. While Jesus speaks of God as a person, his Father, developed Trinitarianism has shifted the meaning of God to a substance or essence. Architect of the Trinity, the Church Father Basil of Caesarea wrote, I quote, we confess one God, not in number, but in nature. But Jesus confessed one God in number, one Lord. The Hebrew word for the number one, Echad, appears some 970 times in the Hebrew Bible, meaning only one, unique, alone, the numeral one, one single. That definition is from Ernst Jenny in Klaus Westermann's Theological Lexicon of the Old Testament and the Brown, Driver and Briggs Hebrew and English Lexicon of the Old Testament and Köhler Baumgartner's Hebrew and Aramaic Lexicon of the Old Testament under the word Echad. It is unquestionable that Jesus never imagined the one God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He would have been offended at such a deviation and distortion of the biblical teaching about God shared with his fellow Jews. The Dictionary of Christ and the Gospels, in its article on monotheism, reports that the suffering of Israel and the teaching of the prophets had fixed immovably in the conscience and conviction of the entire nation the faith that Jehovah was the one God of the whole earth. The New Testament speaks of the unique obligation of worship and service to the one only God, Matthew 4 verse 10, Luke 4 verse 8. In the emphatic affirmation of a common fatherhood and Godhead, John 20 verse 17, compare 8 verse 41, but he refers to the omniscience of the Son, there are also passages in which the epithet one or only is directly applied to the divine ruler, thus claiming for him with more or less emphasis the sole dominion and the exclusive right to homage. The Lord our God is one Lord, Mark 12, 29, from Deuteronomy 6, 4, and compare verse 32. The God who forgives sins is Is, meaning one, Mark 2, verse 7, or Monos, meaning alone, in Luke 5, verse 21. He is unique in goodness, Matthew 19, 17, Mark 10, verse 18, and Luke 18, verse 19. The sole Father, Matthew 23, verse 9, and the only God, John 5, 44. Moreover, in one passage, in John 17, 3, there is found a perfectly distinct and unequivocal assertion of monotheistic doctrine. Eternal life is to gain a knowledge of the only true God. Other phrases, in themselves less definite or comprehensive, must clearly be received and interpreted in the light of this. If an adequate conception of Christ's teaching concerning the Father is to be reached, the whole is to be construed and expounded by means of the loftiest and most comprehensive statements of doctrine 
not to be attenuated to those which may be more particular or obscure. The conclusion therefore is that a monotheistic belief is everywhere assumed in the gospels. And if it is really formulated, the reason is to be sought in the universal assent with which it was received. Christ did not need to teach with definiteness and reiteration as though it were a new truth that there is only one Lord of heaven and of earth. For this belief was common to himself and to his hearers and formed the solid and accepted foundation of their religious faith. And that was from the article on monotheism in a dictionary of Christ and the gospels. Today, that unitary monotheism is regarded as heretical and Jesus as alien because of his failure to accept God as three in one. All examinations of the issue of who God is in the Bible should start with the God texts, and especially those that bear directly on the question of creed. Jesus' own creed should be taken as the only legitimate starting point. That creed demonstrates that the Messiah was firmly grounded in the Hebrew Bible and the one God revealed in those scriptures. Only when the definition of God has been derived from these primary texts can we then fit the position of Jesus into the proper unitary monotheistic framework which he himself provides. In their book, The Mission and Message of Jesus, Major Manson and Wright say of Jesus' encounter with the scribe, quote, the scribe is deeply appreciative of the teaching of Jesus and Jesus warmly commends the insight of the scribe. That's from H.G.A. Major, T.W. Manson, and C.J. Wright, The Mission and Message of Jesus. Jesus' faith was rooted in the one God of Israel. Jesus was a unitary monotheist, as was the scribe who questioned him. Ian Wilson, in his Jesus, The Evidence, from all we know of Jesus, is it possible that he regarded himself as God? The gospel answer is clear. In the Mark gospel, the most consistent in conveying Jesus' humanity, a man is represented as running up to Jesus and addressing him with the words, good master. Jesus' response is a firm rebuke. Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. Mark 10, verse 18. If Jesus had wanted to institute a formula for the religion he taught, there is one moment in Mark's gospel when he had the perfect opportunity to do so. A scribe is reported as having asked him, which is the first of all the commandments? It was an occasion to which Jesus could have imparted one of his characteristic twists, bringing in something new, something involving himself, if he wished us to believe that he was a member of a trinity on an equal footing with God the Father. Instead, he unhesitatingly looked to his traditional Jewish roots. This is the first, he said. Listen, Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, 
with all your mind and with all your strength. Mark 12, verses 29 and 30. Jesus was confirming in the most emphatic way possible that the Jewish faith was the absolute bedrock of his belief. The quotation is not just a passage from Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 to 5. It is the great Shema Israel. Listen, Israel, the confession of faith which every practicing Jew recites morning and evening every day of his life, a confession instituted by Moses in these terms. It is difficult, therefore, to believe that Jesus could have intended the elaborate and un-Jewish formulations of faith that Nicaea and later councils devised in his name and which still represent the way he is supposed to be understood by the present-day Christian. For a leading Jewish scholar, Dr. Geza Vermesh, the one overwhelming stumbling block for Jews is the verdict of Nicaea. In his view, Jesus certainly never imagined he was God. To a pious Palestinian Jew of his time, the very idea would have seemed inconceivable, pure blasphemy from Ian Wilson's Jesus, the evidence. The evidence from Mark 12 teaches us that since the establishment of the creeds in the fourth and fifth centuries, Christians have portrayed their master and Lord at the fundamental level of defining who God is. They've been lured into a Gentile creed promoting a triune God, a God never mentioned as such in the Bible and a God of whom Jesus knew nothing. This would seem to call for an urgent investigation for all those who love the Messiah and hope to win his approval on the conditions which he taught, that is, intelligently hearing and doing God's will by following Jesus' teachings and believing in his kingdom of God gospel, Mark 1, verses 14 and 15, and in his death and resurrection. Can churches afford to remain a moment longer in defiance of Jesus' statement about the constitution of the universe, the true God, and about the only sound basis for worshiping that God? The Lord our God, says the Lord Jesus Messiah, is one Lord. That is the most important of all propositions to be heeded and promoted by all who love Jesus. Bishop N.T. Wright, in his The Meaning of Jesus, observes, Jesus belonged within a world where what we call theology and politics went hand in hand. The theology was Jewish monotheism. The Jews believed their God, Yahweh, was the only God, and that all others were idols, either concrete creations of human hands or abstract creations of human minds. Jesus shared the belief that Israel's God was the only true God. Yes, indeed, and he defined that belief in the one God of Israel, first by affirming the creed of Israel, which declared that fact, and secondly, by addressing the Father as the only one who is truly God, John 17, 3. In the same breath, Jesus placed himself in a position distinct from that one God, 
defining himself as the commissioned Messiah. Bishop Wright later says, the first stroke in my historical sketch of Jesus as a first century Palestinian Jew is therefore Jesus was a first century Jewish prophet. Bishop Wright says again, and I quote, classic Jewish monotheism then believed first that there was one God who created heaven and earth and who remained in close and dynamic relation with his creation. And second, that this God had called Israel to be his special people. How then is right to square this solid historical evidence with what the post-biblical church did by way of revising Jesus' creed? He thinks Paul achieved this revision of the definition of God. In 1 Corinthians 8 verse 6, within a specifically Jewish-style monotheistic argument, Paul adapts the Shema. I add, Jesus did not. Paul places Jesus within it. Quote, for there is one God, the Father, from whom all are and all things, and we to him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and we through him. Why does not Wright simply compare Paul with Jesus and permit Paul to be following Jesus? Jesus spoke about who God is. He recited the unitary monotheistic creed of Israel in Mark 12, 28 to 34. And he then went on to speak of himself as, quote, Lord. But in what sense, Lord? Jesus defined his own lordship with reference to Psalm 110, verse 1, as in Mark 12, verses 35 to 37, exactly as Peter later did in Acts 2 verses 34 to 36. Peter said that Jesus is Lord in the sense determined by the oracle in Psalm 110 verse 1. Jesus likewise spoke of his lordship by reciting the same psalm. What perfect concord and what a marvelous example of one mind on the question of the lordship of Jesus. Paul, in his own words, said he was serving the God of his ancestral heritage, quote, the God of this people Israel, Acts 13 verse 17, who was not a Trinitarian God. Paul confessed publicly that he was, quote, worshiping the God of our fathers, believing everything according to the law and as written in the prophets, Acts 24 verse 14. He was also in the service of the Lord Messiah, defined as the my Lord of Psalm 110 verse 1. It is simply incredible that Paul could describe the God of his fathers as the triune God, or that such a God was found in the law and the prophets. To imagine this is to depart from any sound approach to history and biblical truth, Moreover, the ancient cry of first century Christians, Maranatha, our Lord come, demonstrably defines Jesus as our Lord, a title which is from every angle impossible for the word Yahweh, who is not ever called our Yahweh. Why should not Paul have followed Jesus and Peter in his definition of Jesus as Lord? He obviously did. 
having defined the Father as the one God, besides whom there is no one else, in a truly Jewish manner, Deuteronomy 6, 4, Mark 12, 28 to 34, Paul then goes on to say that Jesus is the one Lord Messiah. This is exactly what Jesus and Peter had done. They had used the massively important prophetic oracle of Psalm 110.1 to define what it means for the Messiah to be Lord. It was a position conferred on Jesus, not because he was the one God, but because that one God had promoted Jesus to the right-hand position as Adoni, my Lord, with a lowercase l, of Psalm 110 verse 1, the Lord Messiah. Adoni in Psalm 110 verse 1 is a title which in all of its 195 occurrences never means God, but someone who is a non-deity superior. It is at this point that standard works seem unaware of the critical distinction between the two lords of Psalm 110 verse 1. The Wycliffe Bible commentary on Mark 12.36 imagines that Psalm 110 verse 1, against all the evidence of the Old Testament, slips in a second member of the Trinity. Christ's purpose in using David's words was to press home from the scripture itself the truth of the deity of the Messiah. That's a quotation from Charles Pfeiffer and Everett Harrison. But he did no such thing. He defined his own status at the right hand of God according to the prophetic oracle of David. He is the Adoni, my Lord, with lowercase l, of David. Positively not Adonai, the Lord God. In their 1001 Bible questions answered, Pettingel and Tori fall into the same trap of thinking that Psalm 110 verse 1 speaks of two who are God. Quotation, what then must a teacher confess about Jesus of Nazareth? The answer is that he must confess that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ of the scriptures. The scriptures demand and declare that Christ is himself God. That's from William Pettingale and R.A. Torrey, 1001 Bible Questions Answered. Amongst verses cited in proof of Jesus' deity, we are then offered Psalm 2, verse 7, 2 Samuel 7, 14, and Psalm 110, verse 1. But Psalm 110, verse 1 speaks of the one God, Yahweh, and the human Lord, Messiah, Adoni, which, we repeat, in none of its 195 occurrences ever refers to God. Of course, Luke had already explained what it means for Jesus to be the Son of God as the one procreated by miracle, Luke 1.35. Luke had then called Jesus the Lord Messiah, Luke 2.11, and reported Elizabeth's reference to Jesus as my Lord, Luke 1.43 reminding us again of the great Psalm 110 verse 1, my Lord with lowercase l, which acts as an umbrella text over the whole New Testament. Psalm 110 verse 1 is the text from the Old Testament quoted in the New Testament more often 
than any other verse. A great deal of confusion has arisen when authorities, as distinguished as the Encyclopedia Americana, boldly misrepresent the Hebrew word for the second Lord in Psalm 110 verse 1. In Psalm 110.1, Yahweh said to Adonai, sit at my right hand. This passage is cited by the Christ to prove that he is Adonai, seated at the right hand of Yahweh, Matthew 22, verse 44. But Adonai, my master, as a proper name, is used exclusively of the deity, either alone or in such a phrase as Yahweh Adonai. Instead of the ineffable name Yahweh, the pious Jew read Adonai. It is clear then that in this lyric, Yahweh addresses the Christ as a different person, yet identical in Godhead. That's from the Encyclopedia Americana of 1949. Amazingly, the whole argument is flawed, built on a failure to read the Hebrew text. The Hebrew word in this centrally important psalm is not Adonai at all. If it were, God would be speaking to God. The word is in fact Adoni, not Adonai. Adoni, in none of its 195 occurrences, ever refers to deity. It is the form of the word Adon, meaning Lord, which deliberately identifies anyone so designated as non-deity. A leading writer on evangelism, Dr. Michael Green, emphasizes Psalm 110 verse 1 as the most favored of all Old Testament passages and then explains that the title Lord for Jesus takes us back to Psalm 110 verse 1. He builds his case for the deity of Jesus by claiming that, I quote, the crucified peasant has the right to the name Adonai. However, the title granted to the risen Jesus as the Lord of the New Testament believers is not the divine title Adonai, but rather the title of non-deity Adonai, Psalm 110 verse 1. The Lord God and the Lord Messiah have become confused in the mind of evangelicals and a frequent misreporting of the Hebrew word in Psalm 110.1 is symptomatic of the problem. The loss of the simplicity of the creed. The Bible's simple unitary monotheism and messianism was turned into chaos by later theology, which spent its energy arguing over definitions for God and Jesus in terms completely alien to the Bible. They crowned this dismal endeavor by finally forcing a view on believers that the one God was one essence and at the same time, mysteriously, three eternal persons. The unitary personal God of the Bible was deposed from his unique position at least in the minds of the theologians. The precious definition of God given by Jesus himself had to give way to a different God who was mysteriously one abstract essence in three so-called subsistences. Church members are at a loss to know how to articulate clearly 
what those three subsistences or hypostases are. They are left with the confusing proposition that each member of the Trinity is fully God and that this is still one God. There's no analogy for this in our common experience of language. Quote, this is a book, this is a book, and this is a book. That makes one book. These are nonsense propositions. The problem is akin to placing three billiard balls on one spot. It is an impossible task. The whole patristic struggle over the creed, leading to the councils of the church in 325, 381, and 451 AD, is light years removed in language and tone from the superlatively lucid definitions of God and Jesus provided by Scripture. Bishop N.T. Wright says that Paul in 1 Corinthians 8 verse 6, quote, adapts the Shema itself, placing Jesus within it. That's from the divinity of Jesus in Marcus Borg and N.T. Wright, the meaning of Jesus. If so, he has changed the meaning of the Shema to the horror of Jews, and one would hope, of Christians. But Paul has done nothing of the sort. He is strictly a Jewish monotheist. To us, there is one God the Father and no other God beside him. That is precisely what the Jewish scribe had echoed back to Jesus, agreeing with Jesus on the unitary creed of Israel. Paul repeats the same view of God as a single person. There is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Messiah Jesus. 1 Timothy 2 verse 5. God is one person. Galatians 3.20. God is in the Greek, is, meaning one, masculine. That is, one person. Just as Jesus is the one seed, the one is person, who is the seed, Galatians 3.16, and the one is teacher of the faithful, Matthew 23, verse 8. In the hope of justifying the later departure from the creed of Jesus, it's popular today to argue that Paul describes Jesus as the one Lord. Thus, we are asked to believe, Paul has now distributed the creed, which defines the one Lord, our God, between the Father as God and Jesus as Lord. If no one is God except the Father, excludes Jesus from Godhead, then, so the argument goes, would not Jesus being the one Lord exclude the Father from Lordship? The fallacy is obvious. It is assumed that God and Jesus are both Lord in the same sense. This is quite false. Paul is careful to say that there is, quote, one Lord Jesus Messiah. There is firstly one God, the Father, who is the Lord God of the Shema. Then there is the one Lord Christ, who is Jesus, now exalted to the right hand of the one God. There are two Lords, but only one God. The second Lord cannot also be God. He is the Lord Messiah, and he is so designated by the angel at the time of his birth. Quote, Today is born to you a Savior, who is the Lord Christ, Luke 2.11, not the Lord God. That Lord Christ is further described as, quote, the Lord's Christ in Luke 2.26, 
the Lord Christ belongs to the one Lord God. Jesus is the Lord Messiah or the Lord's anointed. None of this is in any way problematic, provided the famous Messianic Psalm 110 verse 1 is kept in mind, along with the whole unitary monotheistic heritage of the Old Testament. Psalm 110 verse 1, which Jesus had discussed immediately after laying down the Shema of Israel as the foundation of all true worship. Mark 12, 28 to 34. Jesus had spoken of the two distinct lords. The first was Yahweh, the God of Israel. The second, my Lord, Adoni, was, as both rabbis and Jesus agreed, the Messiah. That Messiah was not a second God member of a trinity, but the royal human, my Lord, with lowercase l, elevated to the highest position in the universe next to God. In that position, he received the authority of Yahweh himself, without, of course, actually being that one God. If Paul had expanded the creed of Israel and allowed another person into it, he would be proposing two eternal beings, and that is not monotheism at all. Paul did not contradict the Shema, nor did he expand it in any way. This would have been to alter the teachings of Jesus as to God's revealed definition of who he is. Neither Paul nor Jesus would have dared to turn the one-person God of Scripture into a two- or threefold God as one essence, which is a quite different idea. Jews to this day are properly aghast at this development. And we should remember that Jesus is, quote, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Hebrews 13, verse 8. He has not forgotten or rescinded his classic statement to Israel about who God is, recorded in Mark 12, verses 28 to 34, and massively elsewhere in his teaching and throughout the New Testament, including John's Gospel. It appears to us a matter of verbal quibble that Professor Richard Baucom has to speak of Paul not adding Jesus to the Shema, but including him in it. That's from God Crucified, Monotheism and Christology in the New Testament. In either case, Paul would have been meddling with the creed of his Jewish heritage. The inclusion of Jesus as the one God would in fact be an addition to the Godhead, an unthinkable idea. The God of Israel's position is in no way compromised by his choice to elevate his own sinless human son to the position of authority next to the divine throne. Psalm 110 verse 1 provides the inspired oracle in regard to this paradigm. Cambridge New Testament scholar J.A.T. Robinson observed in his 12 more New Testament studies correctly that, I quote, John is as undeviating a witness as any in the New Testament to the fundamental tenet of Judaism of unitary monotheism 
Compare also Romans 3, verse 30, and James 2.19. There is the one true and only God, John 5.44 and 17, verse 3. Everything else is idols, 1 John 5.21. In fact, nowhere is the Jewishness of John, which has emerged in all recent study, more clear. As A.J. McLean observes, even ancient documents recall the clear distinction made by Jesus and the apostles between God and his human son. The point made also by Arians that the Son of God could not be in the highest sense God. The Clementine homilies, which used to be thought to be of the second or third century, but are now usually in their present form ascribed to the fourth, make the same distinction between God and Son of God. St. Peter is made to say, quote, Our Lord did not proclaim himself to be God, but he with reason pronounced blessed him who called him the Son of that God who has arranged the universe. Simon Magus replies, that he who comes from God is God. But St. Peter says that this is not possible. They did not hear it from him, from Jesus. What is begotten cannot be compared with that which is unbegotten or self-begotten. Sande refers to this passage as an isolated phenomenon, but now that the book has been with much probability assigned to the later date, we may say that the teaching just quoted was not heard of, as far as the evidence goes, till the fourth century. That's from the Dictionary of the Apostolic Church. How then did God as one person become God as three persons? Theologians admit that ecclesiastic remaking of God as three persons led to endless discussion about how the three members of the Godhead discoursed with each other in eternity. It was an exercise of pious imagination without biblical foundation. I quote, in speaking of the eternal relations within the Godhead itself, we are again in the sphere of the inscrutable, where the only truth for us is in the form of analogy or myth. So wrote Oliver Quick. The Regis Professor of Theology at Oxford in 1938. He concludes his discussion about God and Christ with this astonishing remark, I quote, it cannot be the best expression of the unity of God to declare that God is a single person. That's from the book Doctrines of the Creeds. But how strikingly contradictory is this so-called orthodox view to the plain reading of L.L. Payne, a professor of ecclesiastical history, who remarks that in the Old Testament, quote, God is a single personal being, and that Jesus did not come to destroy the law or the prophets, and, quote, accepted as his own belief the great text of Jewish monotheism in Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. That's from Payne's 
a critical history of the evolution of Trinitarianism. The professor Oliver Quick claims John's gospel for support and seems unaware of his direct contradiction of Jesus and John. He has scrapped the creed of Israel and of Jesus. When John speaks of the Son as in the bosom of the Father, John 1.18, the professor, Oliver Quick, simply reads his pre-existing Son into the text and does not imagine that the historical Jesus was in the closest communion with the one God. If what that professor says is right, then Jesus was certainly terribly mistaken. But for believers, Jesus affirmed the best possible understanding of God when he declared that, quote, the Lord our God is one Lord, and in John's account, that the Father is the only one who is true God, as distinct from the Messiah whom he commissioned, John 17, 3. For Jesus and the whole Bible, God is a single divine person. And if we claim Jesus as the foundation of the Christian faith, Christianity needs to be reestablished on its original strictly monotheistic foundation. It should rest upon a mere, a mono, read that again. It should rest upon a monotheism based on the very creedal words of Jesus himself. The Lord our God is one Lord is hardly a difficult proposition. There is no hint of mystery about the meaning of the word one. Is in Greek, like echad in Hebrew, means one, a or an, single, only one. Does anyone have the slightest difficulty understanding that God is a single Lord? Once the single Lord God is accepted as the God of Scripture and of Jesus himself, there will be no need to, quote, expand or, quote, modify the Bible's unifying monotheistic truth. It has been repeatedly stated in thousands of works on Christology that the characteristic way of describing Jesus in the New Testament was to call him Lord. But that does not make him God. The title Lord goes back to the earliest Jewish Christology, as is shown by the prayer to Jesus, Maranatha, come our Lord. Jesus is the Lord Messiah, Luke 2.11, and definitely not the Lord God. As, quote, our Lord, Jesus is given the royal title suitable for God's vice-regent and perfect agent. The Hebrew Bible never refers to Yahweh as our Yahweh. This is an impossibility. However, the king and other human superiors are addressed as my Lord, with lowercase l, and our Lord, with lowercase l. And this is the fixed basis and origin of the application of the title Lord, with lowercase l, to Jesus. He is our Lord the King, our Lord Messiah. He is introduced from the very start as Elizabeth, my Lord, Luke 1, 43, and as Messiah Lord, Luke 2, 11. It is as the my Lord, lowercase l, 
of Psalm 110.1, that Jesus attains his supreme position at the right hand of the Father. Peter makes this abundantly clear in his definitive statement about the exaltation of Jesus. I quote, God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Messiah. And as proof, and in the same breath, he has just quoted Psalm 110.1 in support, as also Acts 2, 34-36. It is in the sense provided by that key proof text that Jesus is the Lord, and hence the Lord Jesus Messiah. But the meaning there is not the Lord Yahweh, but the messianic and human Lord Messiah. When this basic truth is reinstated, the Shema will regain its proper significance and Jesus will be hailed as the unique human Messiah and certainly not God himself making two gods.